Slimslips.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it, then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We've got to stop them. They're going to kill us all. See how the trouble you've started? Be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. Time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious that you're so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it. Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. Right. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyal? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given rights, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host.
Oh, okay, that's better. <laughs> Welcome to Free Association. Uh, I'm assuming I'm on now. Um, my name's Dennis. It's four minutes past four. A little bit later than planned, but I was uploading a file to to my Google Drive, and it took a bit longer than I was expecting, and uh, Skype and uploading don't really work together, so uh, there was a little bit of a delay there. Sorry about that. So, as I say, welcome to Free Association. It's 4 o'clock in the UK, which means it's 11 a.m. on the East Coast in the States. Uh, today's a bit, a little bit the similar to last week, but not exactly the same as last week. Uh, I've got a piece that I've put together from some some testimony that uh, Rainer Fulmick was collecting from Matthias Desmet for the Corona Investigative Committee in Germany. Uh, so I've got 36 minutes of video, uh, video that I've edited into an audio file, for want of a better phrase. Uh, I've cut out some of the questions and some of the extra bits and pieces, so I've compressed it a little bit, and it's about the right length for the show, at 35, 36 minutes. So I'm going to play that a little bit later on. Uh, but I, I want to just talk for five minutes or so, ten minutes maybe. Um, I did have some things to talk about, but I've forgotten what they were because uploading and Skype. So that's out the window. So I'm just going to talk, and uh, it'll it'll turn into what it turns into. All right, let's talk about um, what twenty two twenty two could be so let's let's do some imagination work why not so how would 2022 be if you were imagining it i was imagining imagining how it could be for me personally so what i would want is a a return to some kind of pre-covid normality whatever that is. I'm not very good at, at fitting in with society, so I'm not too worried about fitting in, but I do like to have some kind of society to to be an outsider from. <laughs> so it's always a, a pretty good idea to have something to be an outsider from. Otherwise, being an outsider doesn't really work. Uh, so I'd quite like you to go back to something along the lines of what it used to be. So I'm imagining that with personal freedom and freedom of speech inserted into it in an additional way that wasn't there before. So I'm imagining that uh, whatever processes are going on at the moment will be will be witnessed and will be spoken about and will be discussed openly and publicly. I'd also like to see anybody that's involved in a criminal conspiracy of any sort, but particularly around pharmaceuticals and vaccines and that sort of thing. I'd like to see them have a, have a good conversation, good honest conversation in front of a jury and a judge and some lawyers, quite honestly. So that's what I'm imagining. Uh, 
I'm imagining a trial for people involved in a criminal conspiracy. Uh, I know Rainer Fulmick, who's one of the guys running the the Corona Investigative Committee in Germany, has got a plan for for a trial for some kind of common law. Um, what would it be called? Some kind of some kind of unofficial legal process, if you like. I don't know what he's calling it. I can't remember. Uh, but it, some kind of legal process is going to be happening. So I mean, imagining that getting media coverage. I'm imagining it being discussed in newspapers and on web mainstream websites. I'm imagining that that they're covering and commenting on the the evidence that's being given and the 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 accusations being made and the the potential consequences. So I'm imagining a legal process um, built around that and also around the European Court of Human Rights, European Criminal Court. I know Mike Eden's got a, a process going on where he served notice of criminal proceedings at the at some kind of European court, I can't remember which one. Again, Mike Eden's given evidence at the the committee, the uh, Corona Investigative Committee in Germany. There's a lot of good people giving evidence to that committee. Most of it you can find on either BitChute or Odyssey. And I think that's probably an appropriate place to share my screen and see if we can play some of this testimony. So as I said, this is uh, Matthias Desmet, who I've played a lot of material from, but he's talking about things in a different way in this particular session. So I'm just going to play, play it's about 36 minutes. So it'll take us to about quarter to the hour, and then we'll see where we go from there. All right, I have a piece now lined up, which is Matthias Desmet uh, testifying to the Corona Investigative Committee, which is Reimer Fulmick and colleagues in Germany. And it's a long piece. I'm going to take about 30 All right, minutes I have a piece of audio lined up from the piece and, and just let it play as best I can, make it coherent. But uh, 30 minutes is enough to get the gist of it. A lot of this material was new, which is why I want to keep focusing on mass formation and on Matthias Desmus in particular, uh, because he gives different examples every time I hear him speak. Well, it's been 
hard to say at what stage we are exactly, but it's clear that uh, the process of, <clears throat> of mass formation and totalitarian thinking is going further and further, I think, in this respect, for instance, that uh, we've seen the introduction of the, of the Corona Safe Ticket or of the QR code as a condition to enter certain parts of, <clears throat> of public space. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's becoming clear already that even Vivian, uh, uh, Dr. Fisher, you referred to uh, the monster that divorced its own children, but indeed it's clear at the moment that even the people who buy into the narrative or to, who, who want to, to identify with the system, to, who go along with the system, uh, will fall prey to the system because also they have to be tested. Also, uh, for them, uh, they are not free again after two jabs. Um, so um, the, 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 the restrictions and the limitations uh, continue uh, to have a, a devastating impact, I think, on, on, on the lives of everyone, uh, not only the people who, who refuse to, uh, um, to, to go along with the system. So and that's exactly, exactly one of the illusions that people have when mass formation or in particular totalitarian thinking emerges in a society, the illusion is that if, as long as you go along with the system, as long as you identify with the system, uh, you will be safe or you won't end up in troubles. But that's not true at all. That's exactly the difference between a totalitarian state and, and, uh, and a classical dictatorship. In a classical dictatorship, this might be true. But it's not true at all in a totalitarian state. In a totalitarian state, as soon as you understand the dynamics that are going on, you realize that there, is only, that there is only one safe, or that, is not, that, is, that there's only one real option, and it is to defy the mass formation. And to do this in a specific way, to begin with, you have to speak out as long as it is possible to a certain extent, and also you have to demonstrate in public space. You have to demonstrate... Uh, according to the principles of non-violent resistance. That's something that is extremely important. Because in a classical dictatorship, for instance, to compare it again with a classical dictatorship, non-violent resistance doesn't make sense. A classical dictator, at a psychological level, has his impact and he has his grip on society. Because people are scared of him, because of his aggressive potential, and he will use his aggressive potential as a reaction to non-violent resistance. But as soon as you enter a state mechanism, which is much more imperialistic or even more totalitarian in nature, then the psychological process is completely different. And in that case, non-violent resistance is what is most effective. And also from what has to be preferred from an ethical point of view, of course. And you can understand that very perfect, uh, perfectly well. I won't uh, explain the mechanism of, or, or at least, unless you want to, but I won't explain the entire mechanism of mass formation again. But if you remember well, the fourth condition, which is extremely important of mass formation, is this enormous potential of free-floating frustration and aggression. And as soon as the opposition uses violence, then the mass will consider this a justification to direct all this frustration and aggression at the dissonant voice. Because that's typically what, at the psychological level, unconsciously, the masses need. They have this frustration and aggression, and 
they always seek for an object to direct this frustration and aggression at, and to to uh, to uh, manifest something that is extremely typical for the crowd or the mass, and it is uh, their inclination to commit atrocities as if it is a holy duty to commit them, as if they uh, need to do so uh, for the sake of the collective, for the sake of the masses themselves. So, um, from this perspective, as soon as you are dealing with mass formation or totalitarian thinking, you need to be firm and you need to organize well-organized non-violent resistance in which speaking out is the first and most important act. Can we just, uh... And the problem is not that people need rituals or that they want rituals because people are symbolic beings and people are in need of certain rituals, I believe. But the problem is that people are no longer, because of their materialist, mechanist view on men in the world, they are no longer aware that they perform rituals. They believe that their rituals have a pragmatic necessity. And that's the problem. As as long as a human being realizes that his behavior is ritualistic in nature, I believe he will have the common sense to more or less limit uh, the impact of the rituals on his on his uh, daily life or on his, on his welfare, on his health and so on. But if people believe that the ritual he is performing or he or she is performing is a practical, has a practical necessity, then there is no limit uh, to, the, to, the, uh, to the sacrifice uh, he, wants to, he wants to bring for the collective. And that's, that's one of the tragedies, I believe, of the totalitarian system. That's one of, one of the reasons, you can explain it in much more ways, but one of the reasons why mass formation and totalitarianism are always intrinsically self-destructive. They are always intrinsically self-destructive because they perform rituals that are not recognized as such. It's, it's, that's funny. Um, I have... I'm not entirely sure about that. Sometimes rituals are used for that as an instrument of power. I also believe that sometimes they give expression to the identity of someone. Uh, and it depends, of course. The ritual, there are many sorts of rituals. Um, but indeed, very often, they will probably be used as a way to make a subject show, voluntary or involuntary, that it belongs to a group. And, you know, I believe that in itself, the problem is not that there are groups and that people belong to groups and that people sacrifice a little bit of their freedom for the group because I believe that a society that can... or if people want to live a life worthy of a human being, I believe there has to be a balance between individual freedom and uh, 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 the collective. Uh, I, I believe that the individual has to realize that... Um, it has to sacrifice a little bit of his freedom for the collective, and the collective has to realize that the fun- its function is exactly to give individuals the opportunity uh, to live a free life. So and as long as there is a balance between the two, I believe, in my opinion, my humble opinion, I believe that um, uh, there is a possibility uh, that the society can 
be really humane and that 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 people can 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 live a, a life worthy of a human being. That's what I believe. There has to be a balance. But the the the, the drama of totalitarianism, the problem of totalitarianism, is that it starts first from a, a state of extreme individualism in which uh, in which an individual has the feeling to be completely socially isolated and to belong to no group at all, which is a terrible feeling for, for most human beings. And then suddenly it switches to the extreme opposite in which the collective is radically more important and also possesses the individual at the mental level completely, uh, which is the, the condition, the, 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 the state of mass formation, and in which the individual, strangely enough, is not really connected to the other individuals. It does not give rise the mass formation does not give, does not make that uh, there are new connections between the individuals. Mass formation makes that the individual is absolutely connected uh, uh, in with the collective, with the, with, the, with the mass itself. And that's why the totalitarian state does not allow any other real relationship unless the relationship between the individual and the state. And that's why, for instance, George Orwell said, the first victim of the totalitarian state is always love. <laughs> the love. Love between people. Yes. So it's basically... Then, then we... Yes. Um, I, I, I believe that... Uh, well, I also believe that the basic ideology uh, that is uh, seizing power now in society is the technocratic and, uh, and the transhumanist uh, ideology, which is, in my humble opinion, dehumanizing in nature as all totalitarianism is. And I mean this in a technical sense, dehumanizing, because the essence of humanity and of the human being is, in my opinion, a certain space in which an individual can make individual choices and has a certain freedom. And uh, that's only logical because uh, as no theory is complete, Every subject should be allowed the freedom to invent its own theory from which it wants to organize its life and its existence. And that's exactly what the totalitarian system uh, 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 refuses to an individual. A totalitarian system believes that its theory, the theory of the state, is total, that it has no lack, and that as a consequence, that it should impose its way of thinking and its theory to all the individuals without leaving them any space to make their own choices. And that, the essence of humanity, is exactly that we, we exist as a human being, as a subject, at every moment when we make choices that are really our own choices, that cannot be reduced to the other or to the state or to no matter who. So that's the moment where humanity, as a phenomenon, emerges. And if a state denies this space to its individuals, then it is really dehumanizing. In a technical, psychological sense, is it dehumanizing? And that's what happens, happens I believe, in a technocratic state where people believe that the technocratic mechanist, mechanist materialist knowledge of an expert uh, is superior to uh, all other types of knowledge. That's exactly then it is by definition dehumanizing in nature. And that's, I believe, the, the, the big risk, the, really the, the, the major risk that is associated to um, transhumanism and all technocratic uh, thinking. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, 
you wanted to say something? Yes, thank you. I always feel a little bit hesitant to see it in a too intentional way, uh, in the sense that I believe that we were anxious because, as a consequence, we and humanity, uh, human beings have always been anxious, and sometimes it is exploited and abused by, by, by people who want to use that anxiety to, uh, to impose their own ideology or to, 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 to get a firm grip on us. So it can be a little bit of the two, I believe. But I definitely agree that we all constantly participate in rituals. We construct rituals every day, every day I think. But that's, that's, and what, what you, what you bring up is, I think, extremely important to make a difference between, uh, ritual that is constitute, constitutive for humanity and a ritual that destroys humanity. Yes. I mean, if, if you allow individuals to, to choose their own rituals, at least, to a certain extent, because a ritual is always something that is shared with others as well, I think, but it needs to be, you have to, the other has to allow you to be creative at the level of your rituals. And that's where you start to exist as an individual. And if the state yes. constantly tries to destroy that, the, 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 the own creative uh, input at the level of the construction of the rituals, then the state becomes an enemy of humanity. Uh, uh, if you regard the, all those Sunday rituals people have uh, with sports, or with their cars, with their hobbies, where they meet, they, they, there are groups of people, they have the same rituals, and they are happy to, to do this ritual with the others together. And uh, so I think it's, it's, you're right when, when you say we, we, we have the, we have the choice whether we go fishing each Sunday or whether we go running each Sunday or so. It's our ritual and we establish it and it makes life easier because we get accustomed to it. We don't have to have sick every Sunday. What do I do now? So we, it's make life easier and we need this uh, simplifying our life because uh, it, it would be too much. Those decisions we could have, and um, but I think this is something our the constitutional thing of our of our the political of the political life too. It's the human dignity. That's the question, and the human dignity is just that that we are allowed to have choices, oh. and, and so and this is and we are all equal in the right to have choices, but we are all different at the same time with our choices. Mm. And to have this balance between those two things, I think it's very important. This is what we, st what we should strive for. And um, I, I think this, uh, there is one thing which is very interesting. It is when you have different societies, so you have, you have neighbors, for instance, we have, uh, we have the neighbors in Denmark, or we have the Czech Republic also, or in Poland, and they have different uh, rituals, and, but the borders are opening, and we go traveling, we make holidays in different uh, societies. So now experience that different societies react differently with this problem we are facing. Some people are more anxious, others are not, and uh, they, they change their life, and others, they don't change it so much. Some, some uh, societies believe that politicians, they do what the politicians say, like in Sweden, they are used to, to, to trust them. And in other, in other societies, people are not used to trust the, 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 the politicians or the police or so because they are corrupt. They used to be corrupt. And so now suddenly we observe that in those societies which are corrupt, which used to be corrupt, there's more freedom than in those societies where the people are used to, to obey. I think it's a funny phenomenon for me 
and uh, I, we could we could uh, perhaps learn something from this, but I don't know what. So perhaps you could help us. <laughs> oh yes. Well. You know, the first thing that totalitarian states tend to do is limiting the, capa the capacity for people to travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes. It is difficult for globalists to do this. It is, it is. <laughs> it is. Can, I, can I ask you something? Um, with their faces because you know that's the thing if there was like a from if there was like a thousand doctors say I think the, the charity has like 17,000 employees or something like that so if like 10 a thousand people 500 people would speak out at the same time yeah I mean maybe that's the same is true for uh, Munich or whatever large hospitals do you know then what could they do so, but they're still, I mean, they're thinking of their careers and they, to some extent, they still don't want to, uh, you know, accept that this is, has been like a whole, like, dark narrative that, that's been fed to them. Yes, I know, you know, I believe that the choice to speak out or not is one of these fundamental choices of a human being on which you cannot have too much impact. Um... I always notice that in my clinical practice as well. You can lead a horse to the water, but you cannot make it drink, it is sometimes said. And you can help a patient to, you can reassure him and encourage him to speak out, even be it only about himself in a therapeutic space. But whether he really does it or not, you cannot decide for him. And that's maybe also the nice thing, because that choice to speak out or not is what most of all defines us. That's the most defining choice a human being can make. To speak out, to say in public space what he believes is true. Not because he is sure that what he will say is the absolute truth or something, but just because at that moment he has the feeling that this is what is true. And that this is what he should say. That's the most fundamental act that a human being can do in that, and in that way it's the most defining act. It's the core of our being. That's when we stop to do that, we lose our soul. That's uh, written in the Talmud, I believe. And it's good that nobody else can make this choice for us, and that we do not have too much impact on this choice in another human being, because it's everybody's choice. It's own choice, really it's own, own choice, to do it or not. So I believe we can try to lead the horses to the water, yes, try to continue to speak out ourselves in an as sincere and honest way as possible, uh, but it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I, I'm afraid that uh, we only can uh, hope that more people will speak out, but that we have to accept if they don't do so. Um, and um, uh, at least that is what I, what I try to do, because I have the feeling that if you try to force someone to speak out, you always have the opposite effect. <laughs> you always have the effect that they close down more, and if they speak out, it's not really the truth that they say. They, they tell what you, well, so in, in that respect, I believe 
we have at the same time to do our utmost best to create a space in which people uh, find the courage to speak out and at the same time to perfectly accept uh, if they don't do it. Um, so either you have it in you or you don't. You can't push anyone. As you said, you can lead the horse to the water, but you cannot make it drink. Some of us will speak out. Some of us won't. Uh, there's, one, there's two more questions that I have. One uh, deals with the self-destructive element, the intrinsic self-destructive element of totalitarianism. And, and the other one deals with what I, as a lawyer, am trying to do, find those who are responsible. The first question is, can you define why um, this is intrinsically bound to be self-destructive, totalitarianism? Is it, is it as simple as the revolution devours its own children because as soon as you've done what you're supposed to do, you don't, you're not needed anymore? Or if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you're also not needed anymore? It, is it as simple as that? I think... Just saying that the revolution divorces its own children is a description of, this, of the intrinsic self-destructiveness of, of totalitarianism or of mass formation, but it's not an explanation. And I think you can explain it uh, from diff many different perspectives, I think. But none of them is very easy, but I will, do an, I will try to, 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 uh, to present one of these perspectives. You know, so... The emergence of a mass happens on the basis of these four conditions we've been uh, discussing. Uh, and it's clear that um, a, a mass wants to continue to exist because it provides this new social bond, the bond between the individual and the collective. And, but it knows that it can only exist if there is an object of anxiety. One, it always has to have an object of anxiety. And two, the object of anxiety always has to be destroyed, stigmatized, marginalized, and so on. Because there is this fourth condition which says that there is a huge potential of frustration and aggression in the, in the, in the, in the masses. And it constantly has to satisfy this aggression, to direct it at an external object. So this makes, this leads to this very specific phenomenological characteristic of mass formation and totalitarianism, that one, it always seeks an object of anxiety, read Orwell, read the history of the Soviet Union, and you will see it, it always needs a new object of anxiety, which the one it needs to destroy. Which is then needs to destroy. And that, in, in the beginning, in, in the beginning, in the beginning, uh, this, the choice of the object of anxiety is more or less logical when you consider it from the perspective of the ideology. For instance, it was more or less logical from a materialist, historical materialism, that it was the aristocracy that had to be destroyed in uh, the Soviet Union. But after the aristocracy came the large farmers. That was also more or less logical. Then the small farmers. That was already less logical. Then the goldsmiths. And then the one group after the other, until Stalin, in a completely nonsensical way until Stalin eliminated 50% of his own loyal party members. So that's the process of mass formation in action. It defines an object of anxiety, it tries to eliminate it, silence it, sometimes destroy it, and then it, it continues with always new object of anxiety until everything is destroyed or until the uh, 
equilibrium of the system balances uh, tips in another way. So, in this, this process, if you want to keep the destruction within certain limits, you have to continue to speak out. That's the point. The, atro the, the atrocities become more extreme as there, is less, there are less dissonant voices. And that's perfectly logical as well, because the phenomenon of mass formation is a phenomenon of hypnosis, and hypnosis is always provoked by the articulated voice of someone, a, a, a narrative that is articulated. And so that explains both at the same time the intrinsic uh, self-destructiveness of the process of mass formation and totalitarianism, and uh, what the solution is if you want, do not want to go along with the masses, if you want to uh, defy the masses, if you want to stay outside of the masses, then it is an illusion that you better go underground. No. You have to remain in public space as much as possible and to speak out. But can I ask you, like... Um... Leaders might try to uh, use more aggression, even if the, the opposition uh, sticks to the principles of nonviolent behavior, but uh, I doubt whether they find whether they will find social support for it. That's the that's their that's one of the problems. Like if you look at um, um, Macron in uh, in French, who used this terrible phrase that he wants to to uh, well, how do you say it in in English? He wants to uh, to make the life of the unvaccinated people completely impossible and so on. He, he didn't find he, he didn't find much social support, and it worked rather contrary to him. And that's because the masses always want to be in the conviction that they live for a certain holy duty for the collective. They are usually usually. I don't think I don't think it will work very well now. Um, but things has also changed. The zeitgeist has changed compared to the first half of the of the, of the 21st century, which is very much to our to our advantage, I believe. But that's something that Hannah Arendt, Hannah Arendt already remarked. Uh, uh, the, the new totalitarianism will not be led by gang members, uh, but it will be led by uh, dull bureau bureaucrats and technocrats, she said. And that was because she was perfectly aware that the zeitgeist was changing and that over-aggression uh, was no longer something that was part of the, the, uh, the idealized uh, uh, fiction of, of, uh, of the population. So, in my opinion, from several angles, from several angles, I believe that um, uh, even if the readers would choose to do so, or were trying to do so, overt uh, uh, aggression against uh, people who stick to the principles of nonviolent resistance will not be very successful, I believe. But what will be successful, what will be successful, is the stigmatization and the marginalization of those who do not want to comply. That will be effective. I think, we, you know. Niels Bohr said, prediction is always difficult, in particular if it is about the future, and it's, of course, that's true. And nobody, nobody knows exactly how, uh, how, how things will evolve. But I, my two cents worth opinion would be uh, that uh, they might succeed in uh, marginalizing and stigmatizing the people who do not want to go along with the system even more than, than, than happens now. That might be successful, but I don't, I don't think that large-scale attempts at physical destruction of the opposition uh, will happen or will be will be uh, will find enough social support to uh, to really uh, be realized. That's what I think. I think this is a very. I think. How can you tell who is who is 
culpable in the legal sense? I mean, criminal law is very simple, in my view at least. Uh, the civil law um, actions, which will definitely follow for damages, uh, that's much more complicated. But criminal law, all you need is an act. Somebody dies because of that. Of this act, somebody shoots at, at, at a person. This person is dead. Then you have the second level on which you discuss criminal law is, is there a defense? Is there... Self-defense, for example. Justification is what this is called. Well, there's no self-defense issue here. There's no justification. And the third level, then, is, is there an issue with, with well, actual culpability? Insanity, for example. Um, this is where most of the criminal cases that are discussed in the, in the general public, this is where they really play out. Because it's usually easy to see somebody killed somebody, and it's easy to see if you kill a child, this cannot really be self-defense. So this all plays out on the exculpation, on the insanity defense in many cases. How can we ultimately see who is going to be responsible because they wanted this to happen and they were capable of um, controlling themselves because insanity means you either don't know what you're doing or you can't control what you're doing. How can we tell this? I mean, quite obviously, this is to me the most important question, quite obviously, those people who are behind this, who wrote the panic paper, for example, of course, in my view, but I'm, I'm, I'm just a lawyer, in my view, these are psychopaths, but that doesn't mean that they're not culpable. How do you see this? Well, um, well, you know, in my naive uh, opinion, I would start to say with I would start to, with a quote of Freud if I want to answer your question. Mm -hmm. Freud said, Freud said. Uh, you are responsible for your own unconscious, he said. By which, by which he meant that it's not because you do something unconsciously that you're not responsible for it. In a psychological and in a, in a, a judicial way, I believe. Um, so, in, in my opinion, the first question is, who transgressed ethical rules in this situation? Who transgressed the eternal rules of humanity? And for, for me, that's always the most important question. I believe everybody can justify why he transgressed certain ethical rules, and we can take it into account if we determine how he should be punished or not. But uh, it's no excuse. It's not, for, for instance, for instance, it's not because someone, when, you, when someone is hypnotized, he usually will stick to the same ethical rules as the ones, as the ones he sticks to when he is awake. So, that means, I believe, that being in a mass or being under hypnosis or being in the hypnosis of being a leader of the mass uh, will sometimes be an excuse to manifest your unethical tendencies. But it will not mean, but, 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 but you will, but it will never push you over ethical boundaries that you want to stick to when you are awake or when you are in a normal state. And I believe that very often the same holds for insane people, although there is a limit there. But in, in, in that case, in that case, if someone is really in a state that we usually refer to as a psychosis, 
in which he becomes the purely the passive object of his own drives and of his own instincts. Sometimes that happens. Uh, but in that case, it's very clear that the, 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 the person is in an extremely specific and unique state which becomes clear of all the rest of his behavior as well. So, I don't believe that most people, if there are people here who uh, try to uh, do unethical things uh, uh, in this crisis, I don't believe that they will be in such a state. Or at least, then it should have become clear to everybody who was around them, and they should be able to describe the wider psychological function of that person in a very detailed way, but... Uh, usually, if someone is in such a psychotic state, he does not function at all anymore, and he shows very specific uh, deficits in his functioning, which are clear to everyone. Yeah, this is, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, the insanity excuse only works for people who either don't know what they're doing or who cannot control their impulses. There are several rules, both here in Germany and in the United States. We have the McNaughton rule, we have the irresistible impulse test, we have the Durham test, we have the New Hampshire test. But this is not what we're dealing with here. Um, this is really what you're saying brings us right back to the Nuremberg trials because that is how they were resolved, how these trials were resolved. It, most of the people who were ultimately sentenced uh, hold out the defense of, of I just love orders. And that is precisely how they were then defeated. How does the sentence defeat me? Because of all those musicians, what you said, I talked about the eternal rules. What this really is, it is an innate feeling or an innate. Capacity to, to tell right from wrong, to tell the good from evil. So if you as a soldier get the order to kill these children, you know you cannot and must not follow this order. So this is what this harkens back to. You know precisely what you're doing, you can control what you're doing, and, and that's what you're saying, you have this innate um, capacity to tell right from wrong. That's why this is not excused, and that, that's why this is not uh, in any way justified. Thank you very much. My okay, that's the end of the session. Almost exactly 36 minutes, so it's going to be about the right length for the, the radio show as well. So that was good. All right, there you have it. That's my edited version of the, uh, the session that Matthias Desmond did with the um, Corona Investigative Committee. Uh, I didn't cut all that much out. I cut some questions out and some, some opinions that the lawyers were giving, but all of the material from Matthias Desmond was in there. So I've got uh, some thoughts from that. That's the second time I've heard that now. And uh, it suggests to me that I, I could be doing a show about... Uh, the relationship between society and people who are outside of society, or between uh, two two different societies, two different civilizations, it suggests to me that there's there's room for for exploring that, and there's room for exploring the uh, the underlying common law assumptions and the the underlying uh, ethical assumptions that 
that are the underpinning of, of societies and where they come from and how they're arrived at. So I'm going to do some investigating. Um, probably not for next week, but I'll put it down as an ongoing potential project for a show and see what see what shows up. What normally happens is I'll, I'll put this down as a potential show and then three videos will show up in the space of two days and I'll have to do something with it. So that's usually how it works. So Google's algorithm reads my mind and then it provides me with uh, with some video material. And then obviously there's uh, Black's Law Dictionary and places like that I can look at as well for the law side of things. I've got an idea for a for a show for when the when the hawk's nest thing gets up and running. We've potentially got the the capacity at Revolution Radio to to do shows for the chat room that have music on them because it's an in, internal thing, and, uh, and we're not there won't be an archive presumably of those shows. I've got some ideas about uh, about shows that are, that involve alien encounters and uh, that type of theme um, I'm not sure exactly where I'm going to take it yet so I'm not going to guarantee it's going to happen but uh, there's some interesting ideas in there so that's two projects I've got over the course of today I've, I've just got these, these two things that I need to follow up on so it's inevitable that I'll get a couple more tomorrow because I'm in that kind of mode at the moment um, I've got an arrangement with a guy I know in Australia who's potentially going to send me some some music that I'm writing lyrics for. Now I've never written I've never written lyrics in my life, but I did I did suggest it to him. So I don't know exactly where that came from, but uh, potentially that might happen as well. Either on Podbean, or actually that one will happen on Podbean. Because I can, I can, we can do it live as a, as a call-in show and see if we can involve, involve the audience with that as well. I'm also intending doing something with Free Association as Philosophical Method this year as well. I've had a couple of years off from that. So if anybody wants to get involved in a group of six or seven people that meet once or twice a week, just to to play with words, to play with language, and see what associations come up. Uh, so it's kind of a kind of a dream interpretation thing, but uh, but not quite. It's kind of psychoanalysis without being psychoanalysis, and uh, psychotherapy without being psychotherapy, and dream analysis without being dream analysis. There's some interesting possibilities with that group, though I used to run a group in Lund in Newcastle about three years ago now, uh, which went up to about six or seven people, and uh, we had some we had some good informal, friendly kind of chat around. Uh, we used to run it. I used to run it for for two hours on a Saturday. So if I can find some people. I don't know whether I want to run it on the Saturday this time round, but if I can find some people who are available maybe on a Friday, I could potentially run something on a Friday, Friday evening or Friday afternoon my time, 
which will be Friday morning US time. Uh, so if you do want to get involved in that, it'll be two hours a, two hours a week. Uh, possibly Fridays, possibly, possibly Saturday evening, my time as well. Um, depending on who's available and when. But you can get in touch with me at Free Association Radio Show at protonmail.com, which is the new email address for, for the show. So anything you want to talk about, if you want to, if you want to come and join us on the round table, that will be the email address to use as well. Uh, if you want me to, to interview you about a particular topic, that's the email address to use. So free association radio show at protonmail.com. Uh, otherwise you can find me on Twitter. I'm Dennis Barker. It's Dennis with two N's. Barker with a B. Uh, you can find me online at shadowplay.live, which is the website website I set up a while ago. Uh, the podcast I do, you can find on Spotify or on Audible or on Amazon Music. It's called Free Association. But if you put if you put in Free Association Roundtable Radio Show and Podcast. That'll bring, that'll bring my, my stuff straight up. There's a lot of, there's a lot of podcasts called Free Association, it turns out, uh, which I didn't know when I named the show, but, uh, doesn't surprise me. So those are the places you can find me. Uh, the podcasts have settled down a little bit now at about 250 downloads a day. So that's fairly steady. Uh, hopefully I can build it up again. Um, find some keywords that that are, that are in the zeitgeist. I was early on mass formation, so that definitely helped. Uh, that was some of the reason it went, it went ballistic over Christmas, but not, not the only reason. Um, I was, uh, paralleling something that, that got me some traffic. So I'm not going to go into details about it, but, uh, it was a good, it was a good plan that I was experimenting with and it seemed to work. So I've now got a, I've now got a plan that I can use if I need a boost in traffic. And uh, potentially there'll be something coming up in January that I want to parallel. So that's there. Uh, let's have a look and see who's in the chat room. I'll just say hello there. Revolution Radio's listener supported. So if you can make a donation, if you've got the ability, then you could come down to revolution.radio. And you'll find a donation tab on the menu. Uh, you'll be able to uh, support us either monthly or with a one-off donation. Yeah, Mitzi, it is fun. It's very good. Uh, it was one of the one of the things that I'm that I w- I've been thinking about for well, I, when I was doing radio, I was thinking it might turn into a radio show. Um, we've done a few of them on the radio, so it does, it does work on the radio, I know it does, it it really depends on the people and the, the dynamics between the people and the, uh, just what's, what's in people's heads. So if anybody wants to, to have a bit of fun on a Friday afternoon or, or Friday morning your time or, 
on a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday evening my time. Uh, just get in touch. Get in touch on on Skype. I'm open philosopher on Skype. Or you can get in touch in the chat room. I'm open philosopher there as well. Uh, everybody welcome. We'll just get a group group together and see what we can do. So that's pretty much it. Um, I've enjoyed myself. I'm going to I'm going to edit the audio together rather than do it live. I think because it takes a bit of pressure off, and it it gives me a bit of space. Uh, so I'm going to keep doing that. It'll gradually get a bit more professional as I go along. At the moment, it's a bit jerky and a bit incoherent, but uh, the the audio is, is is good though. That that Matthias Desmond audio was very good. So that's it from me. Thanks for listening. I'll see you again next week. Barbara Jean Lindsay, The Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Hi, I'm Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. Are you interested in the paranormal? Murder mystery? Real natural law? Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crypt Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crypt Rick's Island, thank you. Welcome to the Crypt. <laughs> what the heck is the truth, Jihad? Hey, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of Truth G. 